welcome to the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. My name is Jeanette Cochran. I'm a pastor, women's leadership coach, and self-proclaimed Jesus feminist. I'm on a mission to inspire and equip women everywhere to own our voice, speak up, create, and lead wherever God calls. Because when women rise, everyone wins. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest for you this week is a best-selling author and a female theologian who thinks deeply about what it means to be a female follower of Jesus in the postmodern world. She is an author that has influenced me significantly. I have never met her until this conversation, but I would say that she's been somewhat of a mentor of sorts for me from afar because her work has impacted me significantly. I'm excited to share her voice and her work with you today. Her name is Carolyn Custis James, and her book, Half the Church, Recapturing God's Global Vision for Women is one that has significantly impacted me. Carolyn is also the author of another significant book, Maelstrom, Manhood Swept into the Currents of a Changing World. In that book, she talks a lot about how patriarchy is not God's design and how patriarchy hurts both men and women. She's also the author of a book called Forgotten Women of the Bible and Finding God in the Margins, the Book of Ruth. So, so many great books that she's written. If you are out there, you're looking for a book to do with a Bible study group, Carolyn Custis James is one of the authors you want to look up because she is deeply theological. She will teach you things that you have never heard before that are deep in the text. She will below your mind. And so you will find today our conversation is very theologically dense. So I hope you will stick with us. I know that you will get a lot from it. And I know that you will be challenged and inspired. So here's my conversation with Carolyn Custis James. Welcome, Carolyn, to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you here. You have been a mentor of sorts to me. We've never met before today, but I read your book, Half the Church, maybe a decade ago, some time ago, and it really impacted me personally and gave me a lot of vision and passion for utilizing my leadership gifts and also for really caring about women globally around the world. You really connect in your book, Half the Church, that um, the importance of the gospel is for all women. And we're going to jump into some of that today and also some of your other books. You are the author of several books that are life-changing. But before we do, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a, a pastor's kid. I grew up in the church. Um, and had two parents who loved scripture, and um, I caught that bug. And I, you know, it's a very conservative. I have three brothers, and you know, the wide world was open to them. But you know, my roadmap was to be a wife and mother. It has been an interesting journey. 
I had 10 years of singleness after college that I didn't see coming and I couldn't get traction in my own story. And it turns out that was God was at work, even though I thought he was, he had banished. Um, nothing was happening in my life, but it made me start asking questions. And I'm still doing that. Um, asking questions about what it means to be a woman, asking questions about who God is and what he's doing in the world and what Jesus has accomplished. And, you know, just a hunger for more. When I married my husband, um, I always tell him he wasn't the man of my dreams. I could never have dreamed him up <laughs> because he, I mean, I had learned so much being married to him, but he didn't, he didn't buy into the traditional roadmap. And early in our marriage, he said to me, you need to find out what your gifts are and what God wants you to do with your life. And I'm not the answer to that question. And he has been pushing me out the door ever since. And, you know, I was supporting um, he was he was getting his education, a master's degree and then two doctorates. One at a theological seminary and the second one at Oxford University. <laughs> so it was a long road where I was the breadwinner. And that changed my outlook, too. But he just he just kept encouraging me. I always like to show this book he gave me. I worked in a hospital when he was in seminary here in Philadelphia. I was a secretary to one of the administrators and I was very bored <laughs> with doing this. And it was, there was no real end in sight. And he came home one day and handed me this book, <laughs> secretary to manager. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just, encourager. nobody That's ever fantastic. talked, nobody ever talked to me like that. And so I started looking for ways to do more. And it was, a, it was a real pivotal time in the hospital history where they were getting more automated in the offices and moving from all their fancy typewriters to computers. And I got in, I jumped in with both feet and it's a lot, it's a long story how it all worked out, but I ended up leaving there and moving into software development. I mean, this was so far from what I thought I would be doing with my life. But um, when I went to, when, when we went to Oxford, um, I had been working with the developers of some really important software that the Brits were using, but didn't understand. And I, had business. I had my own business in England, help, you know, writing programs and setting things up. And when we came home, when we came back to the States, there were lots of shifts in that industry. And my husband was a seminary professor and I ended up being invited to speak to the women because I was married to a professor and um, and that's where um, everything got started for me in terms of ministry. Um, and I I didn't plan it. I didn't expect it. I, you know, I just had this husband who kept saying yes to go do this. And it's been an adventure. It has been a learning process. I'm still learning. There's so much more. 
Um, but it's been costly and in a lot of personal ways. And, um, you know, even he lost a job because, you know, everybody's looking for me to put my fist on the table and say where I am in the ginger debate. And so I get hit from both sides. <laughs> I never planned to write a book. There's, I'm still surprised at what doors God has opened for me. And thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. Well, I think your story of ending up where in a place that surprises you is common for a lot of women who have gifts of leadership and teaching that grew up in traditional churches, but it's not a surprise to God. That's what's the, the, wonderful thing. God knew yeah. the gifts that he placed in you and me and his daughters. And, and I just, when I get to meet your husband one day, I want to thank him because yeah. him being an ally and a supporter and really being behind you has changed the lives of so many people. So many of us have really benefited from your work. So mm. um, I need to say thank you to him. But, you know, I think it's a really interesting time for women. Um, the technology that's available to us has given women voice that they wouldn't have if we were just inside the four walls of the church. Um, it's, it's quite extraordinary. And you're a part of that. Um, you know, who knows who you're reaching in, you know, in these uh, recordings that you're that you're doing and the things, the ministry that you have, it goes well beyond the four walls of the church. I love, I love that. I I was very discouraged early on when I would see our seminary, female seminary students get all that training and then they couldn't get a job. And some of them went back into the workplace. Some of them, you know, did other kinds of things they were scattering, you know, and it was spreading. And I thought, God is doing something here. And, you know, we may not get the jobs that we'd like inside the church, but, you know, we've been pushed out and it's happening and our voices are out and the messages and the pers- the female perspective is being heard. It, I think this is a really significant time. So Definitely. go for it. <laughs> yes, we have made significant progress, I think, in recent years. And much of that has been because of technology. Yeah, And we still have a lot of work to do, though, as you and I both were just talking about earlier. There's so much more to do, specifically in your book, Half the Church. You talk a lot about Genesis 1 through 3, and you bring a lot of new insight to that and something that you even see as the blessed alliance. Talk to us about that. Well, I th- you know, we've used Genesis 1 um, to decorate nurseries with animal figures and, you know, to talk about how the world was created. Um, but this is God's vision for his world. And it sets the stage for everything that follows, the collapse the total collapse that happens in Genesis three and all the ugly stories that we have in our Bible about people doing bad things to each other and women being pushed into the margins. And, you know, it's, it's, 
we've prettied up a lot of that, but it's, but it's not pretty. And when you, when you see the Bible is the story of God's rescue operation to recover the vision that he had in the beginning. He never gave up on that. We've used it to talk about evolution or to fight, fight over who got created first. And what does that mean? You know, in terms of who gets priority or who's the leader and who follows. And instead of looking at it in terms of God and his character and what we see there and what mission he entrusts to human beings. And um, I came away from that looking at how big it is, what God has called human beings to. And there's no discrimination between male and female in Genesis 1. And it actually gets underscored in Genesis 2. So in Genesis 1, we learn that, that God created human beings to be his image bearers. That is a mission. It's not that you're the highest life form and better than plants and animals. It's that you are created to know the God who made you and to learn to, to love his heart and to reflect his heart for the world. People are supposed to find out what God is like by rubbing shoulders with us. It means that we participate in divine revelation. You know, it means that our first task is to know our God and to, and to emulate what we see, to love what he loves, to care about what he cares about, and that we are agents of his kingdom. So I learned that, that the Imago Dei comes with heavy responsibility. And it comes to all of us. And it does mean that we are the highest life form. This is, this is a higher understanding of human beings than patriarchy or feminism or any of the, none of those call us to be like our creator and to be agents of his mission in the world. And that encompasses everything. It's not just church. It's the workplace. It's you know, all the things that people are doing to explore the earth's resources and cultivate it and find solutions for problems and make new things and break new boundaries in terms of exploration. Uh, it involves everything. I mean, one of the things that one of the biggest impacts on me was the book of Ruth. And, you know, when you look at the creation narrative and then you read the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth takes place in the workplace, doesn't have a church, doesn't have a temple, doesn't have a tabernacle, doesn't have a priest or a prophet. It has people working on the harvest and, and feeding their families and about what's happening in the political system and how they are making decisions that honor God's character and his passion and his mercy and his, you know, self-giving love. You know, it's not about religion. It's about life and about our creator. And it's about what he wants us to be like. So, you know, include the workplace in what we're called to 
and not just to be witnesses there, but the kind of work we do, the quality of our work, you know, the kind of employee we are, the kind of boss we are. It involves everything. You know, there's no ranking and saying, you know, this kind of a career is more important than all the others. You know, they're all important because of who we are and who we're called to be. So, you know, we're God's image bearers. And then he calls us to rule and subdue. So we are male and female called to look after creation on his behalf and and to develop its resources and to be his stewards. And, you know, we're not called to rule over one another. It's just not there. And, you know, they can talk all they want about who gets created first, but you cannot get to the end of the book of Genesis and have primogenitor alive and well, (laughs) because primogenitor is the rights of the firstborn. That means the firstborn son, not daughter, gets twice as much as his male siblings of his of their father's inheritance. So if a, if a man has three sons, he divides the pie four ways and the eldest son gets half. So, you know, it's a big deal to be the firstborn. And all through Genesis, God is not choosing number one. He's choosing number two or he's choosing number six or he's choosing number four or number 11, you know, but it's never number one, you know, it's upside down. It's gone by the time, you know, patriarchy is undone by the book of Genesis. Genesis one calls us all to the same mission in all the different, you know, ways it shows up in the world from the moment we are born until we breathe our last it's, it's a universal calling on every human being. And it means atrocities that happen against human beings are worse than anyone imagined because they are an affront to Almighty God. That's his image that has been harmed. That's his image that has been abused. It's, it's an affront to him. And that intensifies the evil that it is. So when you get to Genesis 2, you know, this is this is the text that I always felt left out of when I was single, you know, because they would always talk about this is the this is the creation of marriage. But Genesis Genesis 2 is the creation of male and the creation of female. And they're made of the same substance because God creates the female out of the male. So she's not some different kind of whatever. She's the same. You know, she's made out of exactly the same material as the man. And um, when God creates her, he uh, there's nothing wrong with the man. You know, we've always said, oh, he's lacking, he's lonely or whatever, you know. He's just gotten through naming the animals, which is the beginning of zoology. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a science. And um, but God is underscoring the fact that men and women need each other. 
And he said it in Genesis 1 when he creates his male and female image bearers. He says it is very good. And he says they are together, you know, fulfill his mandate in Genesis 1 to do it together. And that's where I get the blessed alliance because he blesses them. And he, and he commissions them to be his agents in, in the world. And so in Genesis 2, when he um, creates the woman, he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And this is what he needs. And he's creating the female. What he's, what he's doing here applies to all of us from the moment of our birth. Every little girl in, in the world is being talked about here. And the only time it talks about marriage is at the very end of the chapter when there's a very anti-patriarchal statement made where the writer says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Well, it doesn't work like that in patriarchy. In patriarchy, she becomes the property of her husband's family. So already patriarchy is being dismantled overtly in that. But the language God uses for the woman um, is the Hebrew word azer, kenegdo, which is um, the word azer gets translated helper and kenegdo um, gets translated suitable and it's been help meet or, and, and it's been reduced to marriage. Um, it applies to marriage, but like I said, every girl child born in the world is the Azer Canardo. And Azer is a very powerful word and more and more Hebrew uh, scholars are acknowledging that. Um, it's, it's a Hebrew word that's a military word. And in the Old Testament, it's used the majority of times, 16 out of 21, for God is the azer of his people. And it's when they're crying out for help. And it's help that they need. It's not help that, you know, it's not more work for the man. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny to me how it gets reinterpreted so that now he has to think and lead and act for her and protect her, you know, she's more work. She's not help, but she's called to create her brother in the battle for God's kingdom, the kingdom he launched in Genesis one and that Jesus came to restore. And so it applies to all of us that we are Azer warriors for God's kingdom, that we are going to watch our brother's backs, that we are going to be their strongest support, that we are going to get in their way when they head down the wrong path. And it happens again and again throughout scripture, where you see, even in that intensely patriarchal culture, the Azer keeps resurfacing. And God uses her in all sorts of powerful ways to correct his sons, to give them the word of encouragement that they need to move forward. Um, it's over and over again that it happens. So, you know, it's for me, that just changed everything to say, you know, I'm, I'm called. I'm, I'm not somebody who needs to be cared for, you know, 
I, I have work to do. So Genesis 1 and 2 are the over, overarching vision for the Bible. And that's what God is working to recover through Jesus. We're told he's the perfect Imago Dei, which means we need to study him. Study the Jesus between his between Christmas and Easter, you know, what was he doing and what was he, how was he treating people and what mattered to him and to, to follow his example. You present such a beautiful picture from scripture. And it occurs to me that in our world, oftentimes we see two polar opposites. You know, there's on one end of the spectrum, there is patriarchy in its cruelest forms in fundamentalist religious circles. And on the other end, there's radical feminism that tends to pit men against women and and doesn't really bring us together and recognize the image of God in everyone. And so what you've just described really goes back to the scriptures and really says, no, there's, there's a third way and that's God's way. And that is that we need one another. We need to honor one another and recognize the image of God in one another and that God's kingdom mission, it won't happen without both male and female create both created in the image of God, that we are both needed and necessary. And we all have blind spots you know, I, I mean, my work is built on the research of male scholars and interaction with men I know. It's not, I'm not starting from scratch by any stretch. And, but there are also things that we will see in scripture that they don't see, you know, that we will identify with a female character in ways that they wouldn't. And Likewise, they identify more with some of the male characters in ways that we wouldn't, you know, mm-hmm. so you need both, you need it all. And, and then there's one other piece to this. It's really huge. And I started pretty early on when I would speak to a group of women, I said, when you pick up the Bible to read it, you need to remind yourself that you are not reading an American book. And we have Americanized the Bible in ways that are just destructive. They are destructive. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've learned from patriarchy is that patriarchy is not the Bible's message. It's the backdrop to the Bible's message. And if we can learn what patriarchy is like from other cultures in the world today, we have a strong, a stronger tool for understanding the Bible. Here's a simple example. The story of Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus has produced some of the most boring sermons, you know, about, oh, you're too busy or you need to have your quiet time. You know, if you took the story of Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus to Malala Yousafzai and said, what do you see, Malala? 
I mean, they would love Jesus. Yeah, revolutionize the way that totally. women have been treated in the world. Totally. And the Bible is in a, an intensive patriarchal culture. And so some of the statements in the Bible that get made when you understand that are totally radical. Under patriarchy, sons matter and daughters don't count. Daughters are going to go marry and produce sons for somebody else. But your sons will create, you know, your significance in the culture. And so when we read in Galatians that Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ. And then he goes on to say that you are all sons in Christ Jesus. Think of the audience he's speaking to. You know, modern translations change that to you are all sons and daughters in Christ Jesus, or you are all children in, in the family of God, you know, through faith. But that's not what Paul said to a mixed audience. You are all sons in God's family. Wow. So that really and, raised the... the- <laughs> The status for the female sitting there saying, Absolutely. wait, I have all of the rights of a son. I'm yeah. not a second class citizen in Christ. No. no. Uh, and you, yeah, as you're talking about this, you're really hitting on a little bit of the um, what you talk about in half the church and this idea of how the gospel really tears down patriarchy. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth, if we look back at what he did, he did so much for women in the world than any other figure in history. But I think to your point, because we read the stories with Western eyes, 21st century eyes, we don't see what, well, I like to say that the Jesus feminist in him, in his culture, he would have been considered a feminist because he was, he was, sticking up for the women. He was giving them a place. He was teaching them as you, as you point out. So in that, in that idea of that Jesus sets us free, Jesus includes us, that Jesus is tearing down patriarchy and really trying to make us a community of one where men and women are together and unified. What do you, what would you say the gospel message is or should be for women worldwide. I mean, we talk about some of the atrocities and you know, sex trafficking, what's going on right now, even in Iran, as the women uh, are tearing off their hijabs and they're cutting their hair and, and really leading the revolution there that others are now finding strength to speak up. How does the gospel speak into that? If we were to, to share the gospel with those women, what would we say? What would our message be? Because our message needs to be more than just, it would seem to me for a woman living in that culture needs more than just, you're going to go to heaven when you die. No, that the gospel is bigger. The gospel is, is, has implications for today. So what, what would you say about that? Well, I, you know, I do think some of the things Paul is instructing in his letters are, you know, addressing that kind of a culture. 
And um, it's not a culture where you have, you know, a little cute little couple sitting there <laughs> with a, you know, for a marriage seminar or something like that. You have, you have marriages like we do today where the husband's not a believer or the wife is not a believer, but the husband is. Um, you have marriages where the wife is 12 or 13 years old um, or who is one of three wives. So it's, you know, it's a patriarchal culture. And, you know, I think the challenge for Paul and the disciples um, was to take Jesus gospel into the first century. And, you know, it's dangerous. It's dangerous in Afghanistan today. And I, you know, I think for slaves, it was dangerous and, you know, some of them are going to die as slaves. He's not endorsing slavery. I think he, I think he's trying to ease the gospel into the first century without losing lives. You know, I mean, he lost his own life ultimately. So it's you know, it's it's dangerous. And you know, our job is to take the gospel into the twenty first century. I like to tell women, everywhere you are is a front line for God's kingdom. And we have to look at our stories like that. We are God's image bearers. And that means our lives matter from the time we are born till the time we breathe our last. And we don't know how God is using us. You know, back to the book of Ruth, Ruth and and Naomi were moving God's purposes forward for the world. They didn't know that. They just were taking care of the family. And I think we need to see ourselves in a, in a completely different light, that where we're stationed matters. And it's not about being recognized. You know, I think probably today some of the most profoundly significant things that are happening are happening because of people nobody will ever know their name but they're doing they're living out the gospel Jesus didn't save us so that we could leave he saved us so that we would reflect God's character in our lives and so the self-giving love, the care for others and putting their interests ahead of ourselves, the kindnesses and the respect and the rescues that we get engaged in, what we do next matters. And, you know, our, our American evangelical Christianity is about escaping <laughs> and instead of being recommissioned to do what God called us to do in the first place. Jesus came as king. I've been reading about all of this and trying to understand him better. He launched the kingdom of God when he came. He announced it. And so did John the Baptist. And so did his disciples. And he didn't come to you know, throw an explosion and make it happen all at once. He came 
to call God's image bearers back to business, to be what he called us to be in Genesis 1, agents of his kingdom. And so, you know, I have to think about that, you know, and I get flack about, you know, I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. And, you know, and I think, well, you know, when I stand before Jesus, you're not going to be there to answer the questions. You know, it's not going to be John Piper or Wayne Grudem or John MacArthur, who's standing there to explain why I buried my gifts. Okay. I'm going to have to be the one to answer. And I'd rather answer that I did too much than that I did too little. And I think we need to embrace that kind of vision. You know, I have a friend who read Half Half the Sky, which is a book that stirred me up to write Half the Church. Um, I was writing to sort of summarize what I had learned so far, but I was also seeing that the gospel messages for the world. It's not, and it didn't even, you know, it's not a Western message. It comes from the Middle Eastern countries. And um, the the kinds of atrocities that happen globally because of patriarchal values and that happen in the church because of patriarchal thinking you know that these that these things are anti-gospel, and um, that we're called to be something different. I think this is really a stewardship issue for us. You know, my husband said it to me. What are you, what gifts has God given to you? What is He calling you to do? And you know what? He's the one who gauges what matters and what doesn't matter, not other people. You know, again, I go back to the book of Ruth and and how, you know, she was an undocumented immigrant. She's scavenging for food in the fields. And what she's trying to do is produce a son for Naomi's family to inherit Naomi's property and carry on the legacy of that family. And Um, You know, these are little family matters and they're matters that didn't matter to anybody else except to Ruth. And, you know, who is she? She's she's nothing in that culture. She is she's nothing. She's not just an outsider. You, You measure a woman's value in patriarchy by counting your her sons. She's a zero. She's below zero, you know, but she's God's point person. So, you know, we can't, we're not the judge of whose life matters more than everybody else's. You know, it's probably somebody, as I said before, we'll never know who that was until we're in eternity and God lets us know. Every woman's life matters and the things that we may think are inconsequential to your point, we never know how God is working through us. And it was through Ruth that we got Jesus. She was just faithful to do what God was calling her to do. I I love that God um, included the women that he looked after them and he provided for them that even when they were forgotten in their culture, which leads me to 
another book that you wrote. Who are some of the surprising lost women of the Bible? Okay, well, one, the one most women responded to was Hagar. So again, look at her through the lens of patriarchy. She's been trafficked. She's an Egyptian slave girl who was given to Abraham and ends up being Sarah's Sarah's slave. And Sarah decides that, you know, she's in her, what is she in her 90s? And she can't, she has never gotten pregnant. So how about we use Hagar to make a baby boy? So now she's trafficked for sex. You know, we don't. We don't look at it that way. No, no, we don't. And and then she gets, you know, she gets pregnant and she runs for her life because Sarah is being abusive. And who comes looking for her? But God himself. And we learned from Hagar, and this categorizes her as a theologian, that this is the God who sees me. And God gave her a message that that she was carrying a boy and that Abraham was to name him Ishmael, which is what he named him. So she's a prophet taking a message from God to Abraham, but we never give her credit with anything. We don't care about Hagar, but she's important. The one that I love the most is Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law. And this is where translators mess us up. And I was in a class where um, the professor was using the rhetorical method, which is just beautiful. Scholars are looking at the literary nature of scripture. So it's like whose perspective are, is the writer talking from? You know, whose eyes are we looking through? Um, whose story is this? I mean, ultimately, God is the hero of every story. And the stories are intended to teach us about him. But, you know, it's stuff you learned in high school lit class. And he was going crazy over it. He was so, he said, I'm like a kid in a candy store. And he'd already been, you know, he had two PhDs in Hebrew studies and had written commentaries. And, you know, was, he was a kind of professor. If he opened his mouth, I wanted to be nearby so I could hear what he'd say. But anyway... He said that the translation where where Tamar poses as a prostitute and Judah uses her and she gets pregnant by her father-in-law. And it's a complicated story. It's my favorite story in Genesis. (laughs) But the word prostitute just, you know, when when pastors and scholars see that, it's sort of like, oh, how do we get around this? So. And the translation that we've been given is that when Judah finds out that hey, that um, Tamar is pregnant by prostitution, 
he orders her to be killed, to be burned. And she comes out and she brings the identifying pieces that he left with her because he didn't have any money with him to pay her for her services. And she says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these items. And, and the translators couldn't give us the straight scoop. So they said, Judah says, she's more righteous than I am which is a bunch of baloney, <laughs> you know? And this professor and scholars are now saying that what, what he says is she is righteous and I am not. And what you find in the, the story of Tamar, which a lot of people look at as a, a disruption in the book of Genesis is actually the hinge point in the story. Because up to this point, Judah wanted to kill his brother, and he did all sorts of horrible things. He wanted to kill him. He sells him into slavery. He's, he's a trafficker. He covers his crime and lies to his father and makes his father's grief so intense. And then he leaves the covenant family, and he goes into Canaan, and he starts acting like a Canaanite, you know, and he has three sons, and the first two are the ones that ended up marrying Tamar, and they're both wicked men, and in sequence, God wipes them out. And um, and she's under obligation to produce a son to replace her dead husbands. That's the leveret practice. The leveret it became the leveret law. The second son doesn't want to produce a son because he's gotten a boost in his inheritance by the death of his brother. When you read Genesis and you come to the story of Judah, and he runs into this woman who is determined to produce a son to replace her dead husband. And she gets, God blesses her with twins. So she replaces both sons on the family tree. But the Judah you see after this is a changed man. And God used an azer to get in his way, to get in Judah's way and to make him look in the mirror at himself. I am pregnant by this man, the man who owns these items. Mm. She is righteous. I am not. <laughs> Azer. She's an Azer. <laughs> yeah, you're you are so right that I have never looked at the story in that way and saw Tamar's role in that way. You know, the power um, of the of the Bible, we have smothered it. And, you know, there is a gospel message there that's that's not that now if you believe in Jesus, you've got your escape ticket to heaven. We have work to do. And God wants, God loves this world. And his gospel is bigger and more powerful and more full of hope. And we get to participate in carrying out what he wants done in the world. And everything matters. Amen. You have just inspired and challenged so many people, men and women, to look at ourselves differently, 
for women to recognize that we do have gifts and, and we are going to be held accountable for those. And why would we want to miss out on the adventure of being able to be part of God's rescue plan in this world that we all have a part to play. And I love how you include all women you point out in in your writing, whether you are called to full-time ministry in the church or whether you are called to be a CEO, whether you are a mom at home or whether you are a single woman unmarried without children, everyone matters. Everyone has a part to play because the gospel is for all women in all times. I think that is a global vision, as you say in your book, recapturing God's global vision for women, that it's all women everywhere that Jesus died to redeem and to bring us back to be shoulder to shoulder in partnership with our brothers. And, you know, I'm, I'm dreaming for the day that we have more church stories of men and women that are showing the world what it really looks like to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to honor one another and to work together for the good of the world instead of the unfortunate stories that we are hearing and plaguing the church too much these days of, of things gone, gone terribly wrong and power abused and um, women and men suffering. And, and you, you paint in all of your books, such a beautiful picture of that in for men and for women to understand who we are in Christ. And so I'm so grateful, so grateful for your work. Where can others find your books and information about your work if they're interested? Um, I have a website and it's just my name.com, carolyncustisjames.com. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter as Carolyn Azer. <laughs> Carolyn Azer, I love it. Yeah. I will be yeah. looking for that. So, but anyway, thank you so much. I just, you know, you are totally a kindred spirit and it encourages me to hear you talk. Um, there are a lot of us out there and there are a lot of men, incredible men out there who want us to, to do what God has called us to do and um, who count on us to do that. Um, I, I run into some of the most incredible men in, in the work that I do and um, stuff is happening. That's really good. <laughs> well, thank you. I agree. God is at work and I am grateful for the many male allies that I have had over the years that have helped to encourage me and, and, and pour into me and the many women that um, many that I know and some that I don't know and some that I've just been able to meet today, like yourself, who have poured into me in so many ways in your writing and in your ministry. So thanks so much for being with us today, Carolyn. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it with other women in your network. For more information about me and the work that I do, check out JeanetteCochran.com. And I'd love to hear from you personally. Come join the conversation on social. You can find me on Facebook at Coach or Instagram at Jeanette.Cochran.